Welcome to the Prophecy Club. This is a brief intro telling you what you're about to see. You're about to see Ron White telling us when and how he found the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, it has been found. Now, I actually taped this in 1991. We were at the Garden Tomb. Ron Wyatt just asked the 28 of us on the tour to sit down, and he began talking, and every time he talked, I recorded, and this is what he said. Now, before I get into it, uh, he's going to show you about this Ark of the Covenant. He's going to tell you uh, how he found the Ark of the Covenant. This is an artist's renditioning, and this is actually the throne of God. It's actually a, it's not just a box. It's actually a gold-covered wooden chair, the throne of God. And uh, he said it weighs that the lid of it, in other words, up here, this part up here, this weighs about 600 pounds. And he said he did change some things on it. He told me a few things he changed, which I'm not going to release them, uh, so that in case some enterprising person wanted to come along and make one, they would not have the right dimensions. They would not be making it correctly. And the only thing he found inside of it was just the Ten Commandments, and I'll talk about that in the next program that I'm about to post. So this is Ron White's testimony given in 1991 on an Israeli tour. We were at the Garden Tomb. After his talk, he told us to just be seated, and this is what he said. Having been a public speaking instructor, and this is the thing that I wanted to say to you, for some 13 years I have literally heard thousands of talks. And I can tell you, here's how you spot when someone is lying and when they're not. If they're lying, they just stand there and talk, and there's no movements to it. But like, for example, if they were, say, riding a bicycle, uh, and they're riding it, say, downhill, they would be doing like this. And boy, I hit a rock, and you know, in other words, they would be into it. They would be moving. Well, that's what I want you to do. I want you to look at his movements as he's talking about this. You can tell he's, he didn't make this up. He's not lying. He is telling you the truth, and that's the main thing I wanted to bring. So when a person is making up a story, they, they can't put all of those animations into it. And I want to encourage you to do two things. One is you want to go to, uh, first of all, you want to go to watch instantly to watchprophecyclub.com. You can watch all five of these DVDs that normally sell for $30. So it'd be normally $150 value for a gift of $100. You can get all five of them, watch all five of them at watchprophecyclub.com, watch instantly. And that's like $20 a month or $200 a year. But if you go there and you use this promo code, you get a $20 off of that. So it'll only be $180 for a whole year. You can watch all of those all the first month. The first month is even free. Now, if you want the DVDs, you can go to prophecyclub.com. Normally $30 each or $150. We're making all five of them available for a gift of $100. So you see what a real bargain it is to go to watchprophecyclub.com. You want to go and get those five DVDs. Watch them. Excellent, excellent, excellent. You watch those and you will know more about what's really going on with the Ark of the Covenant and most anybody on the planet. Also, I encourage you to get a book and a DVD. We actually had this book printed, and it is the book is primarily the pictures. You see, there's a little bit of text, but there's not much text. It's mostly the pictures. And the advantage of that is you can actually look clearly at these pictures. And you can see this is high resolution. 
these look like the original pictures. Now, the problem with just the pictures is you also need to have the understanding. You have the, need to have the explanation. And that's why this uh, 3.5 hour DVD is part of the offer. Now, you can get DVD. It has the pictures, but they're not as high quality pictures because it's video. But it's explaining it. So what I recommend you do is get them both. Now, just DVD is a gift of $50. Just the book is a gift of $75. Believe me, when you see this, you'll say it's well worth it. So DVD is normally $50. The book is normally $75. But you can get both of them for a gift of $100. Get both of them for a gift of $100. And you can do that at prophecyclub.com. So to explain it, this book covers... Noah's Ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Red Sea Crossing, uh, the Red Sea Crossing of Mount Sinai, and the Ark of the Covenant. And it has pictures of all of it in here. Now, the Ark of the Covenant doesn't have pictures of that, but it has pictures of the drawing. Anyway, it's really good. Here's a picture of Noah's Ark. This is a picture of some of the buildings that were just covered in ash. And you can, anyway, it's, it's awesome stuff. You just got to see it. Uh, I have a picture of me and Leslie standing next to this red granite pillar that marks the entrance or the exit point, one at entrance, one at exit point, Red Sea Crossing. I've also climbed on Mount Sinai. I didn't make it all the way to the top, but that was October the 8th of 2022. And Ron White said that our, t our tour was within a stone's throw of the Ark of the Covenant when we were in Israel. I don't know exactly where it is, and that's probably a good thing, but anyway. You want to get, you want to get this book and you want to get the DVD. So I strongly recommend you get a book DVD combo. DVD 50, book 75, both for $100. It'll be one of the best $100 you have ever given to a ministry. Prophecyclub.com. Ron is about to tell us how he discovered the Ark of the Covenant. And in preparation of this, we need to remember a couple of verses. First Matthew seven or five seventeen says, Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. So for Jesus to be our legal sacrifice, he had to fulfill the old Levitical law. In Leviticus sixteen fourteen it tells of a very special sacrifice that is performed only once a year, and that's on the day of atonement. It's not a personal sacrifice. It is a sacrifice to wash the sins of a nation away or a large group of people. They brought two goats to the high priest. They cast lots. One goat went free into the wilderness. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. The other goat, the blood of that goat, was taken into the Holy of Holies. And Leviticus 16.14 tells how the high priest would dip his finger in that blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, seven times. It says, And he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. So for Jesus to be our, our legal sacrifice, his blood had to land on the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, the mercy seat, a minimum of seven times. And that's where uh, Ron is about to tell us he found the Ark of the Covenant underneath the center cross, cross hole on Golgotha when, where Jesus was crucified. Now, the wailing in the background you hear is the Muslim call for prayer 
this afternoon at 4.30. We are in the Garden of the uh, Holy Sepulchre. The whaling will stop in a few moments, and then you can uh, hear all about the discovery. When you have something that is perfect, you can't do away with it, and you cannot change it. So that was not an option. So he and his son decided that the son, who is equal with God, and if you read through Genesis there, the Hebrew points out very clearly that Christ is God. There's three of them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. While we do not uh, understand their nature completely, we do know that the Hebrew terms used to represent these beings involved in creation is plural. Okay, now then, he sent his son down here to live a perfect life and then to die a very humiliating death. Now you recall when Nixon was caught doing some things, that he resigned. And they said since he experienced such a humiliation and loss, that that was punishment enough. Okay? So anyway, we could say, well, Christ didn't do it just right and all of this. But he did. And God accepted it. And God does not cut corners, nor fudge, nor cheat. He does not have to. So Christ's sacrifice was exactly what was required to redeem every man, woman, and child that has ever lived on planet Earth. And I believe that when we are born, or when we first become a viable creature in the womb, our names are put in the book of life, and only we can take it out by our behavior. Okay, now then, God did this for us, and folks, it was here that he did this, on this mountain. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. The temple was here on Mount Moriah. And Christ gave his life here on Mount Moriah. Now, one day, I was walking along this escarpment with an archaeologist friend of mine. And those of you that know me, I am not given to salubrious soliloquies or sepulchral solicitudes. You know, I am hard-headed, hard-nosed, and I want to know the facts. And that's all I want to know. But as I was walking by, my left arm pointed to a dump under the, the wall or the escarpment, and my mouth said, that's Jeremiah's grotto and the Ark of the Covenant is in there. Well, I love the Israelis, but they're not overly generous, and I think our friend here will agree. But this man said, that's wonderful. We will let you excavate. We will give you a place to stay. We will give you all the help you need. We will provide your food, and we will do your laundry. How many times does an Israeli offer that to uh, a Goyon? Not often. So anyway, I was flabbergasted. I had not even thought about the Ark of the Covenant or Jeremiah's cave or none of that stuff. Okay, 
So anyway, I said later I will maybe do this, but now I've got to go home. So I went home and I dug through history books and all of this. I found out that this city, at the time of the vanishing of the Ark of the Covenant and the other major furnishings of the first temple, when they vanished, the city was surrounded by a siege wall. Second Kings 25th chapter, Nebuchadnezzar cast forts against the city round about. And the Hebrew simply means a siege wall. Titus did the same thing. Part of Titus's wall has survived to the north. They were built out of range of the catapults in the city. Catapult uh, ology had not advanced since Nebuchadnezzar's time. Uh, and the Roman catapults, or uh, that period of time, they had about the same range as the one in Nebuchadnezzar's time. So we can conclude that Nebuchadnezzar's wall was about where Titus's was. Now then, the Ark of the Covenant vanished out of this besieged city. Some people say it was taken to Mount Horeb. Some people say that Solomon's son by the Queen of Sheba snookered him in, into making a, mod, a, a replica and he traded. But the Shekinah glory didn't leave until about 586 BC. This man might have snookered Solomon and everybody else around, but he could not snooker the Shekinah glory. So that did not happen. Now then, the only place short of God blinding part of the Babylonian army and having his people, some of his people, take this out and hide it, was that it had to be hidden in the city or inside this siege wall. Okay? Now then, the city is being systematically excavated down underneath the tunnels, the caves, and everything with very scientific methods. Now then, I went to the Israeli archaeological authorities, including the gentleman I was speaking with when my mouth said something my brain, uh, shall we say, didn't go along with or had no idea about, and I explained how it had to be in one of these inside that siege wall, and I thought that it was there for my research. So they gave me a permit based on that. And we started digging. And as we dug, we found cutouts in the cliff face where three public signs related to the crucifixion were set up when a well-known criminal was to be crucified. Now, this arrangement, I always thought, was just for Christ. It was not. This is how the Romans did it. And they had captured Barabbas, who had stirred up a lot of trouble in the area, rebelled and all of, uh, tried to overthrow the government. He didn't have a lot of luck, but he tried it. And so he was sentenced to be crucified, and he was to be crucified in a very public manner. Now, some say on a hill far away. This is a hill far away. It's a little bit below the crest because they made a quarry through here. But it's still on Mount Moriah. 
Now then, they always crucified people right along to the side of a very busy road where the most people would see the, the crucified because it was meant to intimidate anybody that would be thinking about trying something. And they put the language or the uh, name of the person and what they were accused of in the chief local languages in Jerusalem, it was Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, or Roman. And there's three cutouts there. Now then, in other cities, they put up whatever languages were used there, but it was always Roman was one of those languages. Now then, we, as we excavated down the escarpment, found these cutouts. The wall that was on the outside, away from the cliff face, got so high and teetery that we decided to sink a shaft down to see what strata we would find. We did this and we turned the samples in appropriately. We did uh, carbon-14 dating on the charred wood that we found at different levels. We turned in the mortars and pestles and the bottom, the last one I handed in, they said this is 10,000 years old. Jebusite, of course. But anyway, when we got down, uh, to the bottom, we came back up to where this thing, the ledge of the cliff, it had been cut down into. Anyway, the Roman level was at the top of this thing, and everything below that was pre-Roman. So we went along in a horizontal shaft along the cliff face, carefully documenting everything we as we went. Any archaeologist that doesn't do this is a criminal because people deserve to know what happened here and what was found. Not some made-up story, not some things that were carried in from another dig and put here so they can say, well, we found this here, this proves such and such. There's a lot of that goes on. And in school, they teach you, you do not go out and dig to see what is there you decide what is there, and then you see to it that that's what you find. See, this is what they teach you in school. So anyway, we went along this wall at the Roman level. We found Roman coins. We found Roman glass. We found Roman pottery, all this stuff. We turned all of this in. It's in boxes over in the basement, our storage area at the Rockefeller Museum. Unless somebody came along and decided... It wasn't any good, and they had too much of that sort of thing anyway. Now then, as we went along, I found this cut-out rock. And I thought, man, that's unusual. So I picked the thing up, and I noticed that there was a, a depression under there. So I started digging carefully down through there, and it was just some debris. But it was a cross hole filled with debris. And apparently, when these cross holes were not in use for crucifixion, they had plugs that they put in them so horses or people walking by wouldn't break a leg and so they wouldn't fill up. And they'd have to clean them out every time they were going to use them. So anyway, I was told to put that in a safe place, which I did. And it's still in a safe place. But anyway, it dawned upon me that... 
This had to be where Christ was crucified because this was 12 feet below these cutouts in the cliff face, and it was at the Roman level because we found coins of, of Tiberius and some others. We know that that was open to the public for several years, including the point in time when Christ was crucified. Now then, as we were working there, we noticed a crack in the cliff right by the left side of where this cross hole was. Well, that didn't mean a lot because this thing has been fractured considerably. And if you look along this escarpment, there's a lot of cracks in there. And the Bible says that when Christ died, there was an earthquake and the rocks were rent. Okay. Now then. Today, I know that that crack occurred at that moment in time. Then I didn't know that. What was I excavating for? What was I looking for? What was my permit about? It was to see if the Ark of the Covenant had been hidden in this escarpment. And I had people that I had to report to periodically. Now then, I was running out of money and... It was time to go home, and I prayed, Lord, what shall I do? And I was impressed to break right through the cliff face. And that seemed very icky to me. So I kept looking around, and I found some very old buildings, old foundations, old altar stones, which I left in place, as any good archaeologist will do. And when we got ready to go, the day before we were to fly out, my oldest son, it was his turn down in the hole, and we were passing our tools out to store them. And he said, Dad, you always pray about things. Why haven't you prayed about this so you'll know where to dig? And I said, I have. And he says, well, what happened? And I said, I was impressed to break through this wall. Like, you know, that settles that. He said, well, why don't you do it? You've done dumber things than that before. <laughs> So I said, well, okay. So I had him holler up at my youngest son, pass the tools back down. So anyway, here this crack was in the cliff face that went right by the left side of the wall. I decided if I had made my chisel uh, crack over here that I could just pop this out. See, and I'd have a nice piece that I could put back and wouldn't damage anything. And so we did this and we popped this out. And way back in the little... Back into that crack was a dark hole about like this. Well, I said, give me the flashlight. So I shined it back in there, and here was this cave chamber. Well, I thought the Ark of the Covenant has got to be sitting right back there, and I went off into Never Never Land. I mean, goose bumps, swimmy head, and the whole bit. So we quickly enlarged the hole and got in. Well, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't sitting there. So I worked and worked and poked around in this little hole and that little hole and followed this uh, uh, erosion path through the limestone. Finally, the 6th of January, 1982, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, something else the archaeologist always does. When you enter a chamber where you think something might be, you look at your watch and you make a note of that. It may be important. If you don't find anything in there, you can forget about it. But you should look in case. 
So I did that. I went in there. Nothing but rocks. Now then, ordinarily I would have crawled right back out of that place, but my sons had gotten double pneumonia, walking pneumonia. They were running fevers of about 104. So was I. But anyway, I sent them home, and I decided that I was either going to find that this trip or die in the hole. I really did. That's not very bright, but when you're sick enough, it seemed very logical to me. And so anyway, I got this little Arab guy. He was just about so big, and he was marvelous at getting into places and shining the light around so I could see if they were empty or if they had anything in there. And so we went along like this, and we came to a little hole uh, where the water had eroded a bit uh, through there, and there was a stalactite hanging right down over the hole. So I took my hammer and I carefully tapped it at the base and laid it aside so we would have that for future reference if necessary. And then I made the hole big enough for him to get in. And this is the way we had been working. So he crawls in there, and I start to hand the light back in there to him. Here he came out terrified, absolutely terrified. And if I hadn't got out of his way, I honestly believe he would have taken me apart getting out. He was mindless terror. That made me suspect there was something special in there. So he said, what's in there? What's in there? I'm not going back in there. Well, that was fine by me, but I made the hole big enough so I could get in there. And that is the only reason that I looked in that cave, because it looked very unpromising. So I crawled around on these rocks. The place was full of them, about 18 inches of clearance to the ceiling. And I shined my light down through the little openings down through the rocks. I saw a spot of gold here, and I saw a spot of gold there, and I saw a spot of gold there, and my heart started pounding like you wouldn't believe, and I started taking these rocks and sticking them here, there, and everywhere. I actually ended up with rocks behind my shoulders back here, and here was a gold veneered table. I thought that's the table of showbread. Later, I found out by reading the book of Samuel a little more carefully that Solomon made ten more of them, besides the one that Moses had had Basilil make out in the wilderness. So now I don't know if that was a copy or the real thing. At that point in time, we didn't know that. Well, I happened to notice this stone box right in front of me, and the lid cracked right here. Well... I thought there's got to be something special in this box. And so I kind of looked up to see what I could do to get rid of some more rocks. And I saw some brown, dark brown stuff. And I looked on up the wall and here it had come through a crack. And down the wall and on that broken area of that lid, suddenly it all came together. The cutouts, the cross hole, the crack, the Ark of the Covenant in Christ's blood on the mercy seat. Forty-five minutes later, I came to enough that I carefully put everything back, crawled out of there, sealed up the hole. Now, I can't get anything out of there but small objects, okay? 
but we have been cutting a large shaft down that's big enough to bring these things out. What they had done was to carry this stuff in there, lay animal skins over it, and then wood over that, and then fill it full of stone. Why they did that, I do not know. I can understand the animal skins, I can understand the wood, but why the stones? So anyway, the significance of that is this. In Psalm 77, 13, it says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Now, see, God doesn't just say things to fill up a book. We might, if we're writing a book, say a few things just to fill up a page or another paragraph. He does not. His way is in the sanctuary. On the Day of Atonement, when the goat that represented Christ as the sin bearer, all of the sins that had accumulated in the sanctuary for that entire year were figuratively transferred to its head by the high priest. That animal was killed, its blood was taken into the most holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat. The thought had never entered my mind, people. But when I saw that, I knew it could be no other way. But the Christ's blood had to go on that mercy seat. So tight, that anatite. And it's not that many feet from where you're sitting today. Now then, you have seen Noah's Ark. How many of you here think that you have seen Noah's Ark? Yeah. Okay. And I know that y'all are not goofy and you're not snookerable, if you please. Everything that is in the Old Testament happened. After you leave here, we'll show you the crossing site and a column that Solomon set up with an inscription on it. The Egyptians chiseled that inscription off or it eroded away after the stone fell into the water, into the surf. But on the Saudi Arabian side, there is another column that has the inscription intact. Out to Jabal El Laws in Saudi Arabia is a big, solid, one stone altar, 12 big pillars of stone, thousands of little stone uh, circles with a common courtyard closely associated with the migration of the Habiru pottery and a white marble shrine dedicated to the mountain of God by King Solomon and inscribed in archaic Hebrew are uh, Phoenician script. So anyway, God has done all of these things and he has done it in a manner as soon as these are all documented and presented to the world, everybody is going to know that the flood is not a myth, the crossing of the Red Sea is not a myth. We have found horses, skeletons, people, skeletons, 18th dynasty chariot parts. If you haven't seen them, we have them on video so you can see them. But all of this is real and Christ is real and his blood is on the mercy seat within a strong stone's throw of where you sit today.
I don't know about you, but it's wonderful to know that God has done all of this for us. And it's wonderful that he has left enough evidence around to convince anybody that will be convinced. Okay, thank you. That's all I have to say. Did you get a chance to look in that stone box with the crack in it? We uh, have been doing some work since, but this I have been ordered to keep my mouth shut about. You see, I exist in a very special situation. I can share this with you, and people that believe the Bible know that it had to be that way. They have no problem accepting this. People that don't think I'm one of the biggest liars that ever hit the street. Well, I can live with that. But I know this, that when it is God's time, in Ephesians 1.10, it said, In the dispensation of fullnesses of time, God subdued all things unto himself through Christ Jesus. And in Matthew 24, it said, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son. This simply says that God has a time schedule, and it will happen at that time. It will not happen before, nor after, but exactly at that time. So I can rest in peace. This doesn't mean I go home and just wait for God to tap me on the shoulder and say, go do something. I keep trying the knob because I'm very anxious, you see. But anyway, it will all come about in a manner that the whole world will see the gospel, God's last warning to planet Earth. And then those that see the truth and love that truth and cherish that truth can go to the Father in the name of the Son, and by the Son's blood receive cleansing from that law, mm -hmm. under which we are all condemned to death. And not only can they receive forgiveness, but we can receive rehabilitation. Let's face it, folks, we are not nice people. In our minds are all kinds of things. Thievery, lies, uh, and it could go on and on. Only God can write his law upon the fleshy tables of our heart and change our motivation so that we want to love and help our fellow men instead of taking advantage of them. But in Christ, who died here, we can receive all that we need for eternal life with him. And I think that is absolutely wonderful and again I never say anything to anybody unless they ask the reason is the Bible says you should be able to give a reason for the hope that is within you to them that ask if a person is ready to learn something of God he will have them ask and he will send them to somebody 